Welcome everyone. Uh, John told me on the way over this morning that when the subway has started issuing notes every time people are getting late so that the, the, their, their bosses or whoever has, a, has some kind of an understanding of what the reason is. So I, I didn't come with my note, but I would have been happy to bring one. <laughs> it's part of the New York experience, the subway. Well, welcome on a very beautiful day. And um, it's a very special day to have a whole day together to practice. And uh, I'm, I have a lot of tenderness in my heart about being here and being here with you today. And look forward to an opportunity to share more and to share more deeply about uh, a path that supports us each to relax and to know uh, what's going on in our own experience and to start taking apart the, the pieces that confuse us and letting our minds settle. And so what I envision for the day is that we would have uh, quite a bit of this morning and, uh, in silence. The whole morning is going to be in silence. The lunchtime break, those people who are eating lunch here in the space, to have that in silence. And then uh, we'll have some awareness of movement practice uh, first thing in the afternoon. And then we will do some dyad practice and some more sitting and then close with a a group discussion. So we will have uh, a variety of um, guided meditations and times interspersed with walking. And uh, we'll have a break for our midday meal. And then this afternoon the format will change slightly to allow us to explore some of these themes in conversation and with supported by meditation with another. I'd like to start the morning by talking about the refuges and the precepts and affirming them together as a way of really helping us change gears and connect with a bigger perspective. So often in our life, our world is just focused on, you know, what's going on for me and my needs and my world and my experience and my thoughts and my problems and my pain. And, and when we take refuge, we, we shift the perspective. And it isn't that what's happening for us is irrelevant. It's not that it's irrelevant. But what we do is we open up our vision to include something that is vast and timeless. And when we do that at the onset, it really sets the stage for the whole day in terms of that's really what we're wanting to know about, touch into. And so the, the title or the theme of the talk, self-sourcing versus divine sourcing, we have all kinds of tools that we can bring to meditation. We will use some of them this morning. When our attention shifts and we start relaxing into refuge, not as a um, a framework just out of faith, but as a direct experience, that that is the shift into divine sourcing. That is what divine sourcing is about. And how we each experience that might be different. So we start with that, and then we will end with that, and we'll see how that informs and shapes your experience. 
So when we take refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in the awakened mind. His traditional Buddhists have deep faith and a lot of inspiration thinking about the human being that lived 2,600 years ago and the transformation of his own personal experience into an awakened experience. And so for people who have a lot of faith, just bringing a recollection of the Buddha to mind can inspire the heart opening. For those of us who are not born Buddhists, for those of us who come from a different uh, frame, Sometimes it's hard to connect with a person who lived 2,600 years ago, you know? But when we remember that what Buddha means is the awakened one, and what the awakened one is, is that quality of awakenedness that is ever-present, it's here now, then when we pay homage or take refuge in the Buddha, we're opening to that quality which we all have access to as our potential, which is here in the space now. It's not about a person that lived 2,600 years ago. So it's important to know that, that taking refuge in the Buddha is taking refuge in the quality of the awakened mind. Taking refuge in the Dhamma is taking refuge not only in the vast legacy of teachings that he left behind, which have really clear instructions about how to work with what's arising in a way that supports balance, alignment, relaxation, and wisdom that comes from letting go. But the Dhamma supports us opening up to the truth of the way things are. And That's true whether or not you're Buddhist. When we take refuge in the Sangha, we're taking refuge in the community of people who have seen clearly and are not thrown around by the forces of confusion and fear and greed and ill will. We're taking refuge in our collective aspiration to awaken to awaken out of suffering, to awaken out of, out of the confusion that comes with insisting that life be different than the way that it is, with this ongoing battle of trying to push and shove and conjole things to be different than the way they are, not out of wisdom, but out of force or out of desire, obsessive desire, or out of abject resistance. So when we take refuge in the Sangha, we're taking refuge in this aspiration to awaken. We're taking refuge in the wisdom and the compassion of the ones who have seen clearly. And that's also something that we can know here and now. So the refuges move our experience or our frame from just only focusing on ourselves to being open and connecting with something which is quite a bit bigger than that. And when we affirm the precepts, we're affirming a level of integrity 
that creates a sense of safety so that we can all relax and be here. So any of us who've been through nightmarish kinds of scenarios, you know, safety is a really important thing to protect. And so when we each affirm the precepts, we're creating a container where we can all relax and know that it's safe enough, we don't need to worry about sitting here and breathing without wondering if something's going to happen behind our back. So the refuges and the precepts, the precepts creates a container. And the precepts are to refrain from killing, to refrain from stealing, to refrain from sexual misconduct, to refrain from saying things which are untrue or harsh or divisive, to refrain from drugs and drink which confuse and cause the mind to do things in a careless way. But for myself, when I look at these precepts, I recognize that that's the external container that supports behavior. And having a clear guideline of behavior is really helpful. But it's also helpful for me, it has been over these years, to work with these in an internal way. And so when I take the precept of non-harm internally, I recognize that not only is it about not killing, it's about not harming. And when I recognize that it's about not harming, it's about not harming myself and you. And so the ways that I have traditionally hurt and harmed myself is the way that I have shamed or criticized or judged or belittled or condemned or or um, abandoned myself. And the ways that I have hurt others is the outflow of the way that I hurt myself. And so when I make a time out around that, where I say, it has, those things have to stop, it absolutely has to stop. It's no longer acceptable to continue to berate and judge and criticize and condemn oneself as if somehow that is the truth. It's absolutely unacceptable continue doing that. So to take the precept to refrain from killing, to use it in some kind of a way to give them some purchase against these habits that are so familiar, we don't see them, is really skillful. The second precept, to refrain from stealing. You know, for myself, many years have passed where there's been a kind of a deep-seated hunger for things to be different from the way that they are. And so there's been, in addition to the meditation, I'm sitting here and there can be a simultaneous loop going. If only my knee didn't hurt. If only my back didn't hurt. If only I got here on time. If only it was quieter, if only it was cooler, if only it was warmer, if only I wasn't so tired, if only I wasn't, and the list is endless. If only I was completely enlightened and completely compassionate and completely energized at all times, then and I would be able to meditate. So when we take the second precept to time out on our if-only list, it helps bring us back into, well, what's actually happening right now? And what's wrong with this moment as a moment for meditation? 
to meet what's happening right now. Now, granted, it's not always pleasant, but where is it written that it's supposed to be, you know? So when we use the precept to help us with these habits, to really start getting some traction on these habits, it's helpful in our meditation. The third precept is refraining from uh, sexual misconduct. And in terms of behavior, like on a retreat, this is not a dating forum. So if you came here looking to find your soulmate, I would just invite you to pause that aspiration. Not that that's an unwholesome aspiration, it just might not be the right venue. But when we look at the world of sensuality, you know, it's... It's remarkable the way that we relate to sensuality, not in a way which is necessarily skillful or helpful, but we use it to distract ourselves, we use it to um, stimulate our senses when we're feeling uh, agitated or when we're feeling lonely or when we're feeling confused. And it isn't that there's anything in that by itself which is unwholesome. It becomes unwholesome when we don't see what we're doing and we don't feel like we've got choice and we don't have any other option, you know? So just to begin to look at the sense world for what it is and to start considering how it might be possible to use sight and sound and touch and smell and taste and thought in a way that was skillful, not supporting more desire or more ill will. The fourth precept is around speech. And you know what I would invite in this context is that we observe noble silence. Now noble silence is not an invitation to disconnect. It's not an opportunity to send out hate vibes if somebody's looking at you. It's just an opportunity to learn to relate in a way where our first point of contact is not verbal discourse, but through sensitivity, through feeling, through feeling each other in the space, through feeling what that feels like. And when we observe noble silence, It helps us see the quality of our thoughts in a way different than when we are just speaking. So it's important to learn how to bring mindfulness and clarity and presence to what we say. But sometimes having some stillness and subtleness of mind is tremendously supportive toward that aim. So we'll begin the first part of the day in noble silence. And then the backdrop of that noble silence is to be very attentive to the kinds of thoughts that we're paying attention to and believing. So when thoughts are not true, when they're harsh, when they're divisive, when they're slanderous, when they're useless, notice. Those are not 
it's not helpful to take that as gospel truth, to believe in that. Yeah. Now the fifth precept to refrain from drugs and drink, you know, certainly anybody who is in recovery knows that 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 recovery is a, a phenomenally important part of the path of practice. That without recovery, there's no real ground to work. And so a community that supports recovery, that encourages members who are in recovery, that creates context where there's a sense of welcome and support, encouragement, is invaluable. Because that is critical. It's not a path that we can do on our own. We need each other. But whether drugs and alcohol are our addictions of preference, most of us are addicts one way or another with something. And it's humbling when you're not self-identified as being an addict to actually register the ways that we are addicted. And so the fifth precept is not only about drugs and alcohols, it's about any kind of behavior or any kind of way in which our choice is dysregulated through a pattern that we seem to not have much power over. You know, it takes over us and then we have less choice around it. So just as a case in point, I have had some health problems and somebody suggested reading this book and I read a book and it was talking about the metabolism of carbohydrate and how it has chaos and many different systems, body systems. And some of those areas were the places where my health problems were showing up. So I decided to go on their recommended diet. And their recommended diet was to minimize or carbohydrate intake to a very, very, very low amount. And I was very surprised to realize that I was a carbohydrate addict. You know, and that it was incredibly uncomfortable and agitating, the process of weaning myself off carbohydrates. I did not know that. And I've never self-identified as being an addict. You know, this is not part of what my narrative of who I am is. And yet, you set up the situation in a certain way, you recognize, this is addictive. I'm addicted, you know. So... It's true for all of us. We just need to figure out how. And if it isn't substances, and if it isn't food, and if it isn't behaviors, we're addicted to I am. You know? Holding myself as somehow solid and separate from everybody else. So it's true for all of us. So when we affirm the fifth precept, and we use it, and some kind of a leverage to get underneath our patterns of addiction or to give us some encouragement to seek the support that we need in order to work with our addictions, all of them, then that's uh, tremendously supportive. So, um, Kathy, did the chanting sheets show up? I don't see her. Did Kath, did they, are there, no, okay. So what I'd like to do is encourage you to repeat the Namo Tassa after me, and then I will do the refuges in Pali 
line by line. You can repeat them after me. And then we can do the precepts in English. You can repeat them after me. All right? Are there any questions about any of that before we do that, before we affirm? Is there any questions about how to keep them today or, or what they mean or... Good? Is silence good or silence that you don't want to talk to me? <laughs> silence is good. <laughs> okay. Can't tell. <gasps> And I was living in England, whenever I would get to this pause point, I would know that the way to rectify it is to pass out a cup of tea, and that would solve everything. <laughs> so repeat, we, can, we can do this namo tasa. I will chant it, and then you chant after me. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato asambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhasa And now the refuges. So when we do the refuges, reciting the refuge to the Buddha, the awakened mind, the Dhamma, the truth of the way things are, the Sangha, the collective aspiration to awaken. Really touch those qualities as you understand and know them in your own heart. Bhuedang Sarananga Chami. Your turn. Dhammang Sarananga Chami Sangang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Buedang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Dhammang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Sangang Sarananga Chami Dhatiampi Bhuedang Sarananga Chami Dhatiampi Dhammang Sarananga Chami Dhatiampi Sangang Sarananga Chami So now with the precepts, when we take these precepts, what I'd like to invite you to do is not only to register the external behavior, 
But also see if you can connect with this as a support for uh, attending to these internal habits. And let that support you throughout the day and throughout your life. So the first precept, repeat after me. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living being. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the precept to refrain from sensual misconduct. I undertake the precept to refrain from uh, false speech. I undertake the precept to refrain from drugs and drink which cause confusion and carelessness. Awesome. The meditation is a a pivotal part of practice. It's a pivotal part of turning our mind towards what is and learning to uh, find a, a different way of being with things than our normal way, which is to engage in battle, you know, to resist, to want, to not want, to push away, to space out, to numb out. Maybe that's not your experience. (laughs) So when we bring attention to what is, we notice initially for most of us that that first movement is actually not so easy. The the mind is dispersed. It doesn't want to stay. There's all kinds of thoughts and feelings and thinking and what happened before and what's happening next. And it's a little bit like, like that. And uh, unfortunately, that's normal. It's not anybody's personal problem. It just kind of comes with the package that our attention tends to be dispersed and not very um, centered. And one of the things that happens when we come on a retreat, even a day-long retreat, is that the the magnitude of the impact of what we've been navigating kind of like spills over. So there's a kind of a like a tidal wave effect of of what's present in our systems from the last time we've spent a long time meditating to clear it out. So if there's been challenging dynamics that are going on or issues at work that are going on or the kind of overwhelming angst about what's happening in our world right now that hasn't been attended to, it can be flooding, 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 flooding the system. And so what's needed is just a continued attention to reconnect with simple things, not because any of those themes are unimportant. It's not because of that. It's because when we have a mind and body that is connected and centered and our attention can stay with something, then we bring a power and a cohesiveness, a unified mind to whatever it is that we need to figure out that's very different than the normal dispersed qualities that we come, we bring together. So meditation 
has this kind of uh, time framework where we need to put some problems which are actually very important on uh, the, the counter until we have a little bit more cohesiveness in our systems to then be able to deal with it. Now, one of the habitual ways that we respond, there's a couple of habitual ways that we respond when we're feeling flooded. One is is that we fight, we push, we engage in battle. We want to annihilate or kill or get rid of whatever is going on. And we have different ways of doing that. We tense our body, we engage in different kinds of thinking, but the energy of it is aversive. We're wanting to annihilate it. When we're experiencing that, then what's really needed is to reverse that movement and do the opposite of just a welcome, embrace. You know, Notice something that we want to get rid of, and instead of engaging in the thoughts or the actions or even the subtle movements of body that are resisting to embrace, to welcome, to, to be willing to come close to that which we don't want to have. It's the opposite of our instinct. The other is, is that when we find something that we really love or when there's somebody that we really love that we are, we are, are frightened of losing or there's something that's going on that's really meaningful to us that we don't want to let go of, we can hold on. We can grasp. And our thinking can revolve around trying to keep what it is that we have and strategizing and manipulating and can you know, how are we going to keep what it is that we want? How are we going to get more of what it is that we like? How we can have more pleasant feelings, more pleasant experiences, more time with the one that we love? And so when our mind is looping like that, then it's helpful just to have some space of observing, you know, that we can just notice that this is the clinging, the mind is grasping, it's holding on. And, and to, to lean into the observing quality of the mind that has more space around it. It's more equanimous. Now, our other favorite reaction is to space out. <coughs> you know, it's like, I'm gonna survive by kind of checking out. I just won't be here. It'll be very unpleasant and I won't be here and that's the way I'm going to manage how to deal with this. And so we have any number of ways of how we disappear or disconnect or disassociate or check out or we're just not present. And, you know, it's not a great strategy because a lot of life happens when we're checked out. And it, it doesn't help us get any of our needs met. And it is not something that brings about any sense of wholeness or fullness or real joy. And being spaced out or checked out or disconnected or disassociated, it takes some finessing. 
It takes some skillfulness to just gently bring our attention back to our body and our breath, not in a demanding way, but in a gentle, inviting way, you know, to feel what's present and to just to begin to get a little bit more curious about the things that we're interested in and to let that fill up our attention so that we can, like, invite showing up, waking up, being present. And it's, and in each of these, our aversive responses, our desiring responses, our clinging attachment responses, and our spacing out responses, it's really helpful when we start shifting these gears that we do it without any sense of judgment or, or, or um, shaming, that somehow we've done something wrong. You know, it, it, this is not a wrong. This is just learning, developing tools to respond in a way that there's more skill. There's more uh, a wise-hearted, open response to what is. And so, you know, many things happen. Uh, some of them are lovely. You know, friends can meet and really, really listen to each other, and there can be such a deep sense of connection. It can be so wonderful. And things can happen which are so confusing and hurtful and painful. And, and there can be a, a deep sense of sadness or regret. And this is what happens in life. But it doesn't help us to contract and to engage in battle or to numb out. Those are things, those are not, they might have helped us survive things in the past, but it's not the kind of strategy that helps us in a way where our bodies and hearts and minds can be relaxed and we can feel just confident about meeting what is. So we encourage doing it differently than our old habits and see what the results are. And it's, you know, it can be a a relevant question to say, well, why would I want to embrace something that I want to get rid of, you know? What's the value of that? What's the value of doing it in the opposite way? And the value we'll have to explore for ourselves when we're not pushing, we're not engaged in resistance. What opens up when we welcome? When we welcome sadness. When we welcome something that's painful for us to see or to be present with. When we, when we welcome the the recognition that we can't keep something that we, we cherish, that we love, that it's slipping, it's slipping, it's, it's not something that we can hold. When we, when we make the space to just know that. So the results of this is something that you really have to try for yourself to see. In my own experience, I can say with confidence that the positive result is the sense of well-being, of contentment, the sense of less sorrow and suffering that I experience, that I hold and that I carry forward with me. 
So in my own experience, there has been positive result. But I'd be really aggravated if you believe me. And the reason why I'd be aggravated is because you need to check it out for yourself and see if it's true in your own experience. Because I can't live your life for you. You have to live your life for yourself. You're going to need to make choices yourself. And if you make them yourself based on your own experience, that'll have a different impact than making them because you believed that my experience was also something that you could bank on completely. So I don't mind if you feel encouraged to investigate based on what I say. That won't make me crabby. But I would feel quite um, interested to know how to help you find another way if what you were doing was just taking my experience in lieu of investigating to see if it was true for your own. So this whole process of resisting what we don't like and clutching what we do like and spacing out around the stuff that's overwhelming or challenging is part of the way in which we have the narrative that what's happening is somehow unacceptable. I don't know how to be with it. And the Buddha's teachings were very clear that when we let go, something else opens up. And the something else opens up is not just that our fantasy of fulfillment comes. It's not a magic wand that when I pay attention for two seconds, then everything that I don't want automatically disappears. And everything that I want automatically shows up. It's not offering that promise. But there is something that does happen. There is something that does open. And that's for everyone to discover what that something is and how you experience it and what does it feel like and how is that different from our habit of resisting of grabbing, of clutching, of spacing, of disassociating, of disconnecting? And is it something that you value? So we start the meditation with just feeling our body and starting to land in the space and creating a container where we know where we are. We get a little bit more sense of what's going on. I was happy to hear some of the words from the embodiment practice. I find that a really helpful practice. You know, it kind of gets us in our body in a, in a faster way. It's great. And then we sit down and immediately are dealing with the tidal wave of like everything that has been happening since the last time we did any real meditation. And it can take some time for the whole thing to settle and that's part of it. It's learning to just be patient and just be patient and be curious and just be patient and just come back to the breath, to the body, to something simple. 
And with a little bit of connection, a little bit of ground, then we can open up and see what else is here and learn how to apply antidotes, simple antidotes, embrace what we resist, observe what we cling to, get curious when we're starting to space out and see what happens. So this next meditation is applying these simple tools to our experience to bring more balance. Or the question is to see if we apply these simple tools, what the result is, if in fact it is more balance. So that's the experiment. That's the next meditation experiment, is to try that. This bell is awesome. I love it. just take a couple minutes and invite questions about these uh, practice of meeting what is and then uh, then talk a little bit about the meal offering and um, is there any questions that arise about the practicing the way that we've been doing this morning yes please So I have a question, actually. Uh, I've been observing something kind of new in my practice, and I just was wondering um, if you had any thoughts about it. I think my natural tendency, like while I notice all, you know, aversion and clinging, my natural tendency is to go more towards the spacing out end for most of the, for, or ha- was for a long time in my practice. And um, today I noticed something really interesting, which is during the walking meditation, I noticed um, feeling defensive about my space or feeling aversive to have people crossing through my space. And it's interesting because I have never had that experience before in a walking meditation. So it was aversive, but it was almost, I almost kind of felt like it was progress in some strange way (laughs) because there was some sense in which like I was very present for the experience so I, and and felt a sense of like owning also my space which maybe came out of the exercise earlier so I was wondering a little bit about the distinction between um, irritation and aversion or the distinction between like desire when it can be felt in a kind of pure way versus clinging um, because I almost felt like there was something about that irritation that might have been kind of wholesome. So it's an awesome question, brilliant question, thank you. And I owe everybody an apology because it probably was my mistake that I did not encourage people to find walking paths and not cross each other's paths. So part of that was on me, that I didn't set the context 
But what happens is that stuff happens like that and you feel like, no, that's not okay. You know, that's not okay. I've got to know that's not all right. And what's happening is there's a movement from spacing out and checking out to actually having your space. So you're right. It is actually a sign of health and progress. And so in our, in our path, in our, in our practice, there are <clears throat> the practice of meditation encourages us to let go. But it doesn't have within it clearly defined stages of healing or development in maturation that support us. There's nothing in meditation practice that talks about taking our space in a way that's healthy. That's not a frame that I've ever heard about. And yet we can see that when we're not at all used to taking our space, and then all of a sudden we're given permission to, and we start saying, hey, hey, wait a minute, that's not okay with me, that that actually is a sign of health, and that's important. So one of the challenges that we navigate in a spiritual community is that the tool that we have of meditation is used for everything. And we might be discerning to figure out when that tool is useful and when other tools are also helpful. So just like learning how to feel the space that is ours gives us the confidence to look at a situation differently, it's useful, particularly when we're not familiar with doing that. So the reason why this is a rich and juicy question, because it opens up a topic which is actually quite a bit bigger than the topic of what we're dealing with on this particular day long, as to what do we need to do in our communities to begin to start developing the tools to actually meet the reality of our experience, which includes more than what can be addressed in meditation. It's not a small topic. You had a question. Hello. Hello. I just, in this last sit, I just wasn't sure if I understood the um, instructions. So I felt like in the beginning of the day, I was really... I loved the language that you used of let the breath animate the body and let the attention receive the breath. And so I felt like I was kind of focused on the anchor or like there was more, yeah, focus on the anchor, on the breath. And then in this last one, I was sort of unsure if I, because we were applying kindness to what we resist and mindfulness to what we're grasping and that I sort of felt like, oh, is it not, I just wasn't sure actually if the breath was just there like as a backup anchor in case I just completely got like lost, sidetracked in applying those three tools. If it was like less of a form or not less of a form, but if the form was more applying those tools to the thoughts or sensations that arise as opposed to the anchor of breath. And so... Okay, that makes sense. Thank you for your clarification. Sorry. No, no need to apologize. Um, it's, for me, it's helpful to let attention settle. And that can take uh, different periods of time depending on 
where I'm at and what I've been going through. Once attention has settled to a certain degree, then I relax with a particular object and I let that be the anchor. And then if there's stuff that comes up from that, then I respond to it with the tools that I mentioned. Kindness for aversion, mindfulness with grasping, curiosity and energy with spacing out. So the anchor continues to be an anchor, but the anchor is not there to push things out. It's the anchor to return to after the stuff settles again. So it's the primary place attention is resting until there's something else that takes more of your attention. And then rather than kind of like this, then there's a turning to it and being with it in a responsive way. And then when it releases and settles and is not there, then coming back to just the breath. So attention is using the anchor as its resting place, but not to... Uh, obliterate or to push out or to um, uh, ignore other things that come up. Does that help? Okay, great. One more question. Yes, please. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> lately, I have been crying a lot during my practice. And I just wonder if you have any, especially during loving-kindness practice. And um, it's really intense, so I wonder if you have anything to say about it. That's it. So when you say that, I'm remembering what Ajahn Shah said. And what Ajahn Shah said, that unless you have really cried, wept completely several times, you don't really know what meditation and the path of awakening is. And so there's room for sadness in this path. And for many of us, you know, our hearts have been under some kind of a a stone. And when we start connecting with them, there's a lot of feeling to feel through. So I would need more information to know how to support more than that. But there have been plenty of times when I I have wept inconsolably in meditation. And that has been absolutely what was needed. And it took me some learning to figure out what's the right balance between being with groups and letting that just happen, and then going into a private space and letting it happen there. And so that, and that for each person is a little bit different because each person's needs for privacy or for support from a group won't, they won't be all the same. But just to normalize that tears is part of this path and that it, it can be, it can be a very healthy sign of opening. When you hear that, what happens for you? It affirms the work I've been putting in and makes me feel like I'm on the right track. There's definitely an element of um, having grown up in a way, in a frame that shuns crying, especially for men. So it's one of the things that is difficult is that 
not only are there tears, but then there's also that feeling of I shouldn't be doing this because it's my conditioning. So just hearing you affirm it is helpful. So part of what meditation does is it reveals conditioning and it and it and the feelings associated with them. And we have an opportunity as these things are coming up to rewire our systems to something that's congruent with our contemporary values. It's like a a reset, you know. And so if you can, on one hand, have a sense that that was the conditioning that you have, but on another hand, have a sense that it actually isn't serving you or anybody else, then it would be natural when this is happening to have the, the feelings of, of apprehension or shame or the sense of this shouldn't be happening arising. It's like a cognitive dissonance in this picture of, but I don't want to be living the way I was living before. I don't want to do it the old way anymore. And so it's like trying to find a new way without it yet completely being there, you know? And so that takes leaning in to the present moment with a tremendous amount of tenderness and care that we are responsive and constantly asking what's needed right now, you know, what's needed right now. And certainly one of the potentials of a community is that a community can do with each other what I just did with you, which is meet you and see you and affirm your experience as being uh, valid, appropriate, normal, a response of the practice rather than something that you need to feel anxious or upset by. And so a community that has some depth has abilities to see each other and meet each other and show up for each other in ways like that. Thank you for sharing. So I want to talk about um, the food and I also want to share some information. Some of you may be aware that um, I'm in transition. Some of you may not be aware that I'm in transition. I have been a nun for 26 years. I've been living in monasteries for 28 years. And in a very short period of time, in fact, less than a week, I'm going to relinquish the nun's training and return to living as a a practitioner in a household context. So this is the last day-long retreat I'm teaching as a nun. And we all get to see what happens when I'm no longer a nun, what happens to my teaching. The ways that it's more relevant or less relevant or whatever. But part of my reason for doing this has very much to do with what your question was, which that the tradition that I come from has a bandwidth of what practice is understood to be. And these other elements, which include healing and wholeness and understanding the way um, conditioning takes place and what is actually helpful to support other kinds of growthful ways, is not part of the classical teachings. And so to speak about that has me on an edge 
and that edge has me isolated with my monastic brothers and sisters. And my feeling is that there are a number of people who understand the value of that, but not many of my brothers and sisters. And so I'm curious to see how my own choice will support my ability to speak about what I know to be true in a way that is relevant. So this is all context by saying that I have an alms bowl, which is part of what I have as a monastic. And this has been one of the ways that I have been able to support myself by receiving food and other requisites, which is part of what happens as a monastic. So we have a break now and food can be offered and the food then I can receive and have it for my meal. And then everybody else can have what's left over on that table. And this is a time now where people can come forward and make an offering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.